Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Today we have a legend in the house. His name is Josh Burson, who is the founder and CEO of the Josh Burson Company. As an analyst, he focuses on something extremely important, which is the global talent market, trends and technologies across all industry segments. Josh's research has been published in places like the Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, Wall Street Journal, Economic Times, and a lot of other places. He provides a wide range of research and services for HR leaders and teams for all kinds of companies, including uh, the publicist group. Burson is also the dean of the Josh Burson Academy, which today has approximately 130,000 members and offers 22 different programs for HR professionals. Welcome, Josh. Thank you, Rashad. I am excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Business would not work without talent. And I'm sure we'll touch on some people trying to replace all of that talent with machines. But, uh, you know, till we get to that particular stage, I would love to have you build a little bit about your career. How did you get to this august position, including, you know, being a writer? And we're going to discuss one of your latest books, Irresistible. Well, it was it was a bunch of random um, occurrences in my career, which I think is true for most people. Um, I did study um, English in college and then later engineering, so I had some experience with writing. But most of my education has been in technology and science and math and sort of mechanical engineering stuff. And, um, and I worked as an engineer, as a, as a sales and marketing person, and inadvertently the company that I'd worked in to work for a startup doing online learning in 1998. I was, I was about 15, 20 years into my career. I needed to do something new. And that company we sold to a bigger company, which then uh, went public and laid me off during the 2000 recession. And so right around 2001, right around 9-11, I was without work. And I had always wanted to write for a living and said, well, maybe I'll try to become an analyst. And that started a new career. And originally, I did a lot of work on online learning and the implementation of new kinds of learning models inside of companies. And that led to leadership development, and that led to succession management, and that led to recruiting, and that led to HR. So I've had about 25 years studying HR and doing research and talking to companies about it and then doing consulting. And then in the middle of all that, we sold the first research company we had to Deloitte. And so I spent six and a half years as a Deloitte partner going around the world talking to large companies about their big transformation problems. And uh, since then, I retired from Deloitte in 2018. So I'm back to doing it again. <laughs> so it certainly wasn't planned this way when I went to college to study engineering at Cornell in the 1970s. Ne never had any idea this would happen. Well, and I think it speaks to one of the discussion points you are going to be talking about, which is the world of change and agility and a whole bunch of other things. I'm assuming you have other people helping you and you don't do all of this by yourself? Yeah, we have about 40 employees and the business is growing. Our customer is HR itself. We, we tend to spend most of our time with CHROs and various HR people and the vendors and technologists that support HR. And during the 25 years that I've been doing this, I've seen the human resources function completely change from that of a somewhat bureaucratic administrative back office group of people to being 
consultants, designers, architects, innovators, uh, data scientists, uh, technology people. So, so the whole issue of where human resources fits in helping companies optimize their people strategies and their management strategies has changed dramatically, especially during the pandemic. What are uh, some of the biggest issues these days? Well, there's a couple of very, very big issues that every company is facing. Um, the first is the labor market is very competitive. There are a lot of jobs, not enough people, not enough skills. Um, and so there's a pretty bad, bad war for talent for everybody from frontline workers, hourly workers, to software engineers, salespeople, marketing people. And on the flip side of that, employees have, have created, become very mobile, very empowered, uh, very demanding, and also very tired and burned out from the pandemic. And so uh, there's a kind of a new contract that has to be written between employers and employees that companies are beginning to understand. And in the middle of all that, we have an economy that has inflation. We have a stock market that's sort of flattened, pressure for more profitability and productivity inside of companies, and just incredible acceleration of business transformation as retailers get into healthcare, healthcare companies get into tech, automobile companies get into electrical vehicles, oil companies get into batteries and wind power, et cetera. So, so there's just this kind of um, conglomeration of confusing issues that companies are facing. And in the middle of all this, the employees need to get reskilled and redeveloped and redeployed for all of these new roles. And that is all about people strategies, management, development, coaching, learning, um, and the things that we do in HR. So Josh, one of your three predictions for the future, building on what you just mentioned, which is even though it is a somewhat lagging economy, your belief is that hiring will continue to be a challenge uh, due to all kinds of things, including workplace and workforce demographics, as well as shortages in key skills as different people are trying to get into different industries. Um, can you elucidate a little bit more about that particular prediction? Sure. Well, you know, unless we have a massive recession, which I don't think is going to happen, what I certainly see happening amongst all the companies that I talk to is a continued shortage of talent at all levels of companies. Some of this is because of the fertility rate and the, you know, the, the fact that people are getting married later and most of the developed economies are peaking in population and working population. But some of it is because the rate of change of these jobs in companies is so high that um, you know, we keep looking for people with different skills. And you know, that's a little bit of a never-ending chase. Let's find somebody who understands chat GPT. Let's find somebody who understands prompt engineering. Let's find somebody that understands neural networks, you know, and then tomorrow it'll be something else. Um, and those people are out there, but they're very hard to find because everybody else wants to hire them too. So, so the big issue that virtually every company is facing in every industry, and we've looked at this in healthcare and banking and consumer products and telecommunications and tech is 
given that it's going to be harder and harder and harder to hire the precise, perfect person you need, can you develop that person? Can you find that person internally? Can you find somebody with adjacent skills and teach them the things they need to know? So a lot of the um, HR practices that have to do with development and career and growth and coaching and internal mobility are becoming business essentials. Um, now, there are some countries in the world where there are a lot of people looking for work, like India, for example. And so, you know, most companies have done a lot of work to outsource different functions into India. But that doesn't work for everything. That doesn't work for every job. So, so I think we're going to be in a constrained labor market for probably the rest of my career. I just think this is the future. I could not agree more. And, you know, later I will plug you on a book I'm writing to hopefully get some insights from you. Um, and it's called Rethinking Work. It will be published in fall of 2024. And three of the statistics I share, I think, which are very much like yours. One is that outside of the continent of Africa and maybe a little bit of India, most other countries' population have gone into has gone into decline. Right. And it's about to happen in the U.S. because of everything from COVID, the lack of immigration, to very expensive real estate and healthcare. The second is, Josh, you and I are what we would call seasoned individuals, which would be probably <laughs> older. And with 10,000 people turning 65, that's the other demographic challenge that many companies have. Uh, and it's not just in our fields. But, you know, whether it's contractors, craftspeople, uh, not enough people available. And the third, which is, I think is a very interesting demographic uh, sort of shift, is for the first time we have four generations and we might now have five generations at work. And when I speak to and I've understood some research on Gen Z, where about 64% of them have a side hustle or a side gig or a passion project. Yep. That gives most people who run HR who tend not to be Gen Z, I mean, headaches and hernias and all kinds of things. <laughs> you speak a little bit about that. Well, Rashad, let me give you one more. There's another interesting angle to this, and that is that people are actually living longer. So careers are elongated. So one yes. of the ways we're going to fill that gap is we're going to have to find a way to you know, kind of manage this workforce of people that are in four or five generations. And people in their 70s and their 80s continuing to work and giving them good jobs that they can do without feeling like they're being left behind. Yeah. And, and, then, the, and then the young people entering the workforce now, they're going to live well into their hundreds. This, this sort of widening of the aperture of who the people are at work is going to keep getting wider. It's, it it's is. going to be fascinating. It is. You know, I used to, when I give people advice, I said, look, plan that you're going to have at least a 40-year career. Yeah. Then as I proceeded along the way, I said, uh, sorry, it's probably going to be a 50-year career. You know, it could be a 60-year career. <laughs> if your career is 40, 50, 60 years, you're going to have a lot of different jobs. You're going to be yep. in a lot of different companies. You're going to be in a lot of different industries. You don't have to think about your career as one thing. No, no. There'll be many, many careers. And uh, you know, to a great extent, you and I have lived through this. I mean, if you think about your careers, you've done a lot of careers and you've got another act right now. Right. Right. And uh, that, that is you know, pretty extraordinary. I mean, there are a lot of opportunities to this new world order, but what are some of the challenges that your, the, you know, the companies that you consult with, which is pretty much everybody, 
us are facing. You know, there's really one gigantic challenge, and it's manifested in many, many ways. And that is that virtually every hiring, pay, recruiting, development, promotion, performance management, and everything else practice is rooted in the traditional employment model. So imagine a company where people work for the company for 20 or 30 or 40 years. They change jobs inside the company on a regular basis, and they change professions inside of the company. How do we pay them when they change professions? If they suddenly go from being a marketing analyst to a data scientist, do we triple their salary? No, the company's not set up to do that. In fact, it's they, the company will prevent that from happening. So that person will quit. They'll realize they're underpaid, and then they'll say, well, I'm out of here because I can make a lot more money somewhere else. So there's all these practices like this that are just not up to date <laughs> on how we actually optimize the workforce in this just different dynamic experience, plus the fact that people are, as you said, doing gig work or part-time. Um, we have a lot of young people working for old people or, and old people working for young people. Um, and the young people want to make more money, but and they're not going to wait for the old people to retire. So we've got that issue of the pyramid. I mean, there's just dozens and dozens of things like that. And most companies I talk to, certainly the HR people, they're kind of using old 1980s, 1990s GE yes. models of yes. management, frankly, that they don't even know what to do with. They don't like them, but they're not sure what's next. And that's the reason I wrote my book, is to try to break through these different ideas that, that we have to manifest in a much more scalable way. Well, I'm going to be reading your book, and I'm going to obviously ask you more about your book soon. But I write the Substack, which sort of builds on what you just said. And the Substack title is called The Future Does Not Fit in the Containers of the Past. That's right. The thing that gave me a very good education on this was when I was at Deloitte. I got um, catapulted into Deloitte when they bought our company, and I didn't know what to expect. And, and what I realized is a lot of the ways professional services companies work are the models for many, many other industries, where people change jobs regularly. They're evaluated based on the projects they worked on, not necessarily their annual review. Um, the, pay, the pay varies directly with your skills and capabilities, not necessarily your tenure or your level. There's just a lot of things to be learned from these very people-centric businesses that, that help virtually every other industry understand what some of these new practices are. You have a second prediction or perspective with regard to a managerial mindset, which is about it being more built around human-centered leadership because of continued need for agility and resilience. Can you elucidate on that? Yeah. I, I mean, I have been fortunate in my career. I had very early in my career, I had a very, very incredible manager when I was at IBM in the 1980s. And he was a rough and tough, kind of old-fashioned, gruff guy, wore a suit and tie, as we all did. But he was really a people-centric guy, and he believed in the young people in the group. And he took all of us under his wing, and he protected us and trained us and told us what we were doing wrong. And then, you know, and, that, and I was lucky to have him. 
And then since then, I had a whole series of managers that never did that again. <laughs> and, um, and I realized that what was going on in most of the places I was working is that the people that, were, that I was working for were always over their heads, in over their heads. They were thrust into leadership roles that they weren't necessarily prepared for. And they didn't really know whether their job was to drive output, to push people, to motivate people, to develop people, or to just be a nice guy and just make sure everybody gets along. And, you know, so what I got a chance to do was observe many different types of managers in very different companies and then talk to lots and lots of companies about this. And it's very clear to me that the leadership and management roles of the future and today are uh, that of a coach, not a boss. Sometimes you have to be a boss, but most of the time you're a coach. Because what I believe, and certainly from the companies that I've talked to and the research I've done, is that every human being on the planet can and wants to contribute more to your company and to their job. They don't always know how. Uh, they're oftentimes afraid to stretch themselves into something they're not familiar with. They're worried they're going to get criticized. They're worried that people won't pay attention to them. Uh, maybe they were, you know, for some reason, grow, grew up in an environment where they were punished for misbehavior, so they're afraid to stretch themselves, etc. But if you can find an environment in a job where they are able to um, spread their wings and be themselves and contribute in the best possible way that helps the company, they will. And if you believe that, which I do, and I've seen it in everybody I've ever worked with, then your job as a manager is to make that possible. Cre make sure the person's in the right job, make sure the job itself is achievable, coach them, develop them, give them advice, move them around, help them decide what's next for them. And if you can do that as a manager, you're going to be a big success. You're going to have a team that's successful. You're going to hit your numbers. You're going to be highly regarded. You're going to have great relationships. Um, and some people are sort of born as coaches, but many people aren't. Many people get promoted into management because they think it's a way to make more money or they're really good at their job and they just get promoted. And, and yeah. that's what one of the whole chapter in the book is about is really, you know, learning this idea that being a manager is not being a boss. It's, that's a very small part of it, actually. Yeah, you know, I basically say there's a very big difference between being a leader and a boss. Right. You know, and a boss, to a great extent, is a title that people genuflect in front of, but they laugh at at the bar, and it's a zone of control position. Well, and, you, you, and, and I think what holds people back, including myself at times, is truly believing that the person that you're working with, that might be your subordinate, is actually quite capable of doing the work if the situation is right. And so you're, you know, spend less time evaluating them and criticizing them and try to avoid that and think about what you can do to help them thrive. Um, and I've seen people that know how to do this and they're just amazingly successful leaders. Not everybody's good at it. It takes a while to learn how to work this way. If people just recognize that uh, the people working with them have all the potential of doing the job and it's more like bringing it out from them rather than constantly evaluating them. And while not everybody has that skill, it is going to be increasingly important because of the first point, which is if it's going to get harder and harder to find people as well as you're going to have to 
train people and do all kinds of things, thinking that you can just get a supply from outside may not be the right way. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the old model is this person's not the right person. Let's go hire somebody else who knows how to do this job. And let's hire somebody who's done it before because if we can find somebody who's done it before, they're going to be super successful. So there's like two problems with that. Number one, they're hard to hire if you can find them. They're probably in demand. So you're going to spend a bunch of money looking for them and a bunch of time. Second problem, of course, is just because they've done the job before doesn't mean they know how to do it in your company the way you do it with your customer set, with your culture, etc. So there's a lot of risk every time you hire somebody from the outside. So if you can make the internal person more productive, you're way ahead. Now, a good example of this is all these tech companies that are going through rolling layoffs, the Facebook layoffs, the Amazon layoffs, they're all over the place. These companies, and I know a lot of them, thought that the only way to grow their company was to hire more and more and more and more people. And they're now realizing that the more people they hired, the more unproductive their companies became <laughs> because it takes a while for people to really get to know the company and get to know the, the business. Um, and that as soon as the marketplace slowed down a little bit, they looked around and said, how do we end up with all these people? So, so this idea of optimizing and improving and, and developing performance of each individual is always a good idea, even during the greatest growth times you're in. And if you're a good coach and if you're a good developer of people, you start to pick up all sorts of instincts on what it is that creates high performance. And it actually makes you better at recruiting also. It makes you a better um, recruiter of selecting people when you do hire them from the outside. So there's all sorts of good reasons to think this way. It's a story. I'm not sure it's true. But when Michelangelo was asked how he crafted David, the statue, he said, he was always there in the block of marble. I just let him out. Right. It's, it's the same idea. There's, there's another concept in HR that, that I want to just mention that is a part of this. It's called job crafting. And the idea is the job becomes the person. The person doesn't become the job. And, and the same thing's true for companies. The companies become the people. The people don't become the companies. Who you hire changes the company, changes the job. And if you don't give the people in your group the opportunity to add value in their own way, you're missing that opportunity and you're probably going to force them to underperform. And that goes back to the industrial days of work when every job was, was sort of put into a box and it was very rigid and mechanical. But there's very few jobs like that left. Every job I know of requires a fair amount of human ingenuity and creativity in the way it is performed within the limits of the job itself and the work and the safety and the compliance issues in the company. So, um, so I think that's a really good yeah. way to think of it is, you know, let's allow each person to thrive in their own particularly unique way in the context of what we're trying to accomplish as a business. I think that's a tremendous big idea, job crafting, which is in many ways, your company becomes the people you hire. Right. And, you know, let the people become the job. Yeah. You know, it's funny because for me, Rashad, when I go out and I meet companies, within a few minutes, looking around the room and talking to the people in the conference room or whoever I'm meeting with, I can tell what kind of a company it is. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah. just from the way people talk to each other and the style and do they wait for the boss to talk? I mean, you can pick up a lot about the nature of the whole company from the people. And, um, and that's why culture is such a big issue in leadership is, you know, sometimes you don't realize you've created this culture that isn't working correctly. And, you know, it's because of the way people have been treated and the environment they've been managed in. And I, and I also believe that a lot of companies, I think because some of these things, like how one leads, how one coaches the culture, are measurable but not completely measurable, so they right. sometimes don't pay as much attention. And oddly, you know, as someone basically said, what can be measured is not necessarily what's valuable. Sometimes the most valuable can't be completely measured. So one of the things that's coming back now that we have this slower economy is performance management, goals, you know, forced rankings, layoffs. And we're going back to this thing that's been going on for years, which is let's give everybody a bunch of goals so we can measure what they're supposed to do. And then we can decide at the end of the year who's hitting their numbers and who's not. Um, and there's been just a, it oodles of research on this by tons of people. And my assessment of it over many, many years is that the more you focus on goals and metrics and you know targets, the lower performance you get out of people. <laughs> All of a sudden, they're only thinking about their goals. They're not thinking about the work. They're not thinking about the customer. They're not thinking about the quality. You end up with situations like Wells Fargo with people cheating on their goals, not partnering with each other, not teaming with each other. You got to be really careful what you measure. And if you measure activity and if you measure tactical things, you're going to get tactical behavior. And you're probably not going to get the result you're kind of hoping for. So um, it's a particularly risky time for people to talk about productivity all day and then say, we're going to measure everything you do to make sure you're spending enough time at work or whatever it is that people ask you to do, because that tends to backfire. And there's been lots of studies on that. I could not agree more. I often basically say, often you give people the wrong incentives, you'll have the wrong behavior, right? which is exactly what happens. And to your point, the more you have the metrics and the goals, the less you have the performance. It's sort of like Heisenberg's principle. You can measure the speed of a thing or where it is, but not both. Right. Uh, which I think is a, is a big, big issue. You know, are there other examples of companies that have either are moving to and are thinking more about this sense of new forms of leadership, coaching-based leadership? Yeah, let, let me give you two examples of companies everybody knows that I think are really educational to think about. The first is Starbucks. You, you probably think of them as a really great company and, you know, maybe they've you know, had a few fumbles here and there. So in the early days of Starbucks, when, when Howard Schultz was leading it directly, it was a magnificent employer. They pioneered the idea of healthcare and education benefits for hourly workers. They provided a lot of training, a lot of development, a lot of growth. They became, in a sense, like McDo what McDonald's was when I was a kid, which was the place where you kind of learned how to go to work every day. It, it just became an entry career opportunity for thousands and thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of people. And as the company grew and grew and grew and grew, and we ended up with the pandemic, um, they tried to accommodate every possible customer need, iced coffee, hot coffee, breakfast, lunch, dinner, food, you know, whatever. 
and they made the jobs harder and harder and harder. And they had the staff, you know, overwhelmed. And during the pandemic, of course, people were coming into the stores in masks and there was mental health issues and everything. And the Starbucks employees were getting targets to deliver more and more and more results. And they were getting upset. They couldn't do it. And along come the unions and some of the Starbucks create unions in different stores. And Howard Schultz comes back and says, how did this happen? I mean, this isn't the company I created. What happened here? And I saw him appear in Congress three or four weeks ago, and it was just shocking to see how um, sort of confused he was about how Starbucks had gotten to this point. And that what that's an example of is not listening to employees closely enough. Because I'm sure, and by the way, he wasn't the CEO during this latest period, I'm sure that the employees in Starbucks were more than willing to talk to management about why their jobs were getting harder and harder and harder and harder, but they weren't listening. They were adding more goals, more performance metrics, and so forth. So anyway, there's an example of something that didn't work too well, but they're fixing it. Another one where it did work well that everybody knows is Microsoft. So when I knew Microsoft in the 80s, Microsoft was a brutal, up-or-out, competitive company. They laid off 10% of the employees every year. They had a forced ranking process. Uh, they were doing very well in the PC days, but it was a brutal kind of a culture. Um, and, you know, that kind of worked because there used to be a pretty big war in the PC days of, you know, Apple versus Microsoft versus IBM. Um, and then along comes the internet, along comes search, along comes advertising, along comes mobile. Microsoft misses all of it. Microsoft had no solutions in any of those areas. And one day they tried to buy companies to get into it. They just, they just missed it. And they were, you know, not considered to be a very successful company for a long period of time. Along comes Satya Nadella, smart guy who had worked his way up in the company. He goes, you know, we got a culture problem here. We are not the smartest people in the room. We've got to be the smartest learners. We've got to be the listeners. We've got to pay attention to what our customers and our competitors are doing. And we need to work with each other as teammates and uh, bring this growth mindset to every meeting, to every project, to every situation, to every customer. And lo and behold, look at Microsoft today. Microsoft is leading the emergence of AI. Uh, they've had spectacular financial growth. Um, it's a great place to work. I know a lot of people there. Their HR stuff is way ahead of the curve in many, many areas. Um, and it, a lot of it was this cultural change towards growth and development and empowerment and trust of the people in Microsoft. So, I mean, I could give you tons of examples like that, but I think those are two that most people can certainly relate to. So I'm going to sort of now move to your third focus, which I think, you know, to a certain extent, we spoke a little bit about in the Starbucks thing, is that customer experience will be an important market differentiator for companies uh, because that's going to be very, very important. And that in many ways, a big part of your brand are your employees. Well, employee experience is an interesting um, journey. When I first became an analyst and I was studying all this HR stuff, I decided I wanted to do a study of employee engagement. It was called engagement at the time. And I hired a woman who had worked at an engagement survey company. And she said, well, we don't really need to study it. It's already been studied. 
read my book. And, you know, we had Gallup telling everybody that the number one thing for employees was having a best friend at work. And there was a lot of dogma about what it took to engage employees. And we were measuring engagement through the annual surveys and through employee retention. And, and when I worked at IBM, and a lot of companies did this, is they would just make sure that every year their engagement numbers went up a little bit. And as long as they went up a little bit and they could figure out where the problems were, they were happy. And then along comes digital work, uh, the internet, all, this, all these open job networks like, like LinkedIn and Monster.com, and all of a sudden, and Glassdoor, and every, all of a sudden they're like, everybody says, well, wait a minute, once a year, we got to keep track of employees' interests much more frequently than that. Maybe we should survey them every quarter. And people were said, nobody's going to take a survey every quarter. And now we survey people every day. <laughs> and we look at information about their feedback from their activity on Microsoft Teams or something else. And we, and we try to get sentiment analysis. And we look at their, uh, you know, we, we even have systems that look at their emails and their video conferencing to determine if they're under stress. And what's been happening is um, the HR and the IT departments are beginning to realize that given this issue with the labor force, we need to do a much better job of paying attention to listening to employees first and then making their work life easier. And so this idea of employee experience came along, which by the way, is 10 years behind all the work that happened in customer experience. Because when I worked in customer marketing in the 80s, we were already doing pinpoint marketing and segmenting customers into groups and coming up with journeys and things like that. So, so companies have been working on this for about five or six years. And it's, it's a beginning of really changing the way companies manage people and giving employees um, much better tools for productivity, much more personalized benefits, um, you know, fair and equitable pay, giving them a sense of purpose and mission, giving each employee a career plan and a career growth opportunity, and of course, giving them great tech stuff so they can find information and they're not logging onto 15 different websites to do their jobs and making the work more productive. And one of the things that gets in the way of that is what I often call the kitchen drawer problem, which is you open up the kitchen drawer and you look in there and there's so much junk you can't find the fork or the spoon you were looking for. And you say, well, how did all this junk get here? I don't even know where it all came from. And that's what happens in companies is we have IT systems that proliferate. We have onboarding programs, training programs, this, that, and the other thing. So employee experience is a big area that's usually a combination of HR and IT really taking all the attention we've paid for customers towards employees. And it has massive ramifications because you learn things about uh, management issues, training issues, job design, productivity tools, operational problems that um, you probably didn't really aware of until you really studied what the day in the life of an employee is like. And that's, you know, all been really, really positive and it's still a work in process. One additional thought, if I love your thinking on, is that now employees also, to a great extent, as I do believe has happened, 
have all become media companies. So, you know, you sort of mentioned, you know, Glassdoor and all these other places. Uh, I think when you think about the fact that each one of us can be a media company because of social media and everything else. So often I tell people or big marketers and big leaders that in many ways, um, your biggest advocates, and if you don't treat them well, your biggest detractors may not necessarily be your customers, it may be your employees who are far more believable. Well, absolutely. I mean, that, that's another thing that sort of crept up out of, out of nowhere, the, the power that employees have in the social media market. The other thing I would add that I talk about a lot with companies is employees have a much deeper vested interest in making your company better than customers. If you mess up in a customer, they just leave. They don't tell you. They just don't buy from you anymore. They're poof, they're gone. And the same thing's true for investors. Investors just say, I'm done with this company. I'm selling my stock. I'll go find something else to invest in. Employees can't do that. So not only do employees represent an opportunity to make the company better, but they're usually pretty willing to commit. So if you ask them to do some superhuman effort uh, to help you transform the company, they're going to usually do it because they don't want to go look for another job. They've spent years working here. They have friends in the company. They they like the customers. They like the experience they're working on. So they're not the same as customers. <laughs> you can get good feedback from them. You can ask them to participate in the improvements and the transformations you're doing if you take care of them. So, so I think there's kind of almost a double value of taking care of employees than if you think about that relative to customers. I, I could not agree more. Before we end, I would like to ask you a little bit about you know, you you started off as an analyst, and now you're a best-selling author. <laughs> and I just ordered your most recent book, which I will then mooch off. So tell us about your most recent book, Irresistible, which is a very unusual name for a book about talent and HR. Well, thank you for asking. Um, I mean, the reason I entitled it Irresistible is that the, the, the idea that I was trying to get across is you can always make your company or your job or your, your management techniques better and better and better. And so there is no limit to how good you can make the work experience for your people. And so what I, what I did is, is the book is really the culmination of many, many years of research. And you know it probably took me three years just to write it. It certainly wasn't written because of the pandemic. I was working on it long before that. And it's filled with um, examples and stories of how companies have learned how to improve their businesses through their employees. And then it's um, broken into seven ideas, seven big ideas uh, that really in many ways represent the big transformation from the industrial age to the information age to what I would consider to be sort of the age of human services, where every company is in the human services business. Um, even if you buy a piece of, you know, a product like a shirt or something from a store, or whatever it may be, underneath that thing you bought is all of these value-add human services that company did to create that experience for you as a customer. And so the seven, um, what I call secrets, but they're really kind of management principles, are all transformations from the industrial age to the current age. And they're based on real work with real companies. I didn't make this stuff up. I'm not very academic. 
I mean, it's really based on just hundreds and hundreds of stories and, and lots and lots of studies that we've done. Well, I think it's a fantastic place to end. We've had the pleasure of listening to Josh Burson, who has basically shared with us a lot of thinking, both his years and years of research and insights and advising, plus some key thoughts from his new book, uh, Irresistible. Uh, Josh has spoken about the importance of a people-centric managerial mindset, about the need to rethink work or other jobs and think more broadly about work as we try to attract talent in a world where because of new skills and demographics, we're going to have a bit of a, uh, of a bit of an issue and how important employees are to brand loyalty and to satisfied customers, among other things. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Rashad. It's been great being here. What Next, a publicist group podcast produced by Prodigious UK.